Coming up on Life is a Festival. Almost all of the problems that we're dealing with are vastly, and I mean vastly, like six to 10 orders of magnitude more complex than the most powerful tools that we have for making sense of and responding to problems in general. And these problems are not alone. Right? They feed back on each other. They are related to each other in increasing levels of complexity. So the meta crisis, right, the meta set of problems that are in relationship with each other, the tough nut to crack, is sort of extraordinarily beyond our capacities. Well, therefore, if we want to do anything besides delude ourselves or fail stupidly, we have to earnestly begin to think about what would it look like for us to create or to participate in the creation of, the emergence of, something that does have the capacity to respond to these crises. It's, I think that feels, feels pretty simple, right? My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Well, hello, my fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Well, gosh, I just watched a train wreck of a presidential debate, and it left me feeling as I'm sure it left all of us feeling pretty powerless in a world that is running off the tracks. And this sense of powerlessness in the face of global pandemic, raging fires, this um, political clusterfuck has been really wearing on all of us, wearing on our mental health, wearing on our physical health. It is a rocky time, and it's a rocky time particularly when it comes to our ability to first make sense of and then act in the world. Well, thank God I have on the show today, finally, a man I've admired for many years, Jordan Hall, formerly Jordan Greenhall. I first discovered Jordan after reading his situation assessment in 2017. It's some pretty heady stuff. And his essay on sovereignty, which is a huge part of this conversation today, was really pivotal in my own maturation of uh, my perception of my ability to act in the world, something that I'm still working on and thinking a lot about. And I'm so, 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 so excited to share it with you. So this conversation is a great follow-up. If you liked my first conversation with Jamie Wheel, that's episode 33, which was encouraging the Burning Man community to grow up and show up, this is a great follow-up to that. And we're really going to talk about the sovereignty necessary to do that. So on the show, we start, as often is the case for this program, we start with my personal experience. And I talked to Jordan about my challenge of transcending the sometimes myopic preoccupation with my own personal mythology and the sort of magical thinking that happens when you are hyper-focused on personal growth for its own sake. Now, at this point in the show, we actually got interrupted, which was really exciting because we were able to explore regaining sovereignty in real time. We go on to talk about something called epistemological humility and 
using this kind of humility as a way of making sense in the world. And we talk about the strange emergent phenomenon of QAnon as a way of navigating through this. And if you know people who have fallen sway to the QAnon narrative, this conversation may be helpful for having conversations with them. We touch on Jordan's ideas of the blue church and the red religion. And finally, we look at the upcoming U.S. election and how we might marshal and deploy our resources in an increasingly mad world. Jordan has been involved in many esteemed organizations, including Harvard Law School, the Aspen Institute, and the Santa Fe Institute, where he served on the board of trustees for five years. He co-founded DivX, Game B, and Neurohacker Collective with Daniel Schmachtenberger. And if you are enlivened by this grim optimism for existential crisis and just the enormity of this man's thought, I would advise checking out his essays on Medium and his public talks, and that'll be in the show notes. This is a heady conversation, and so to better locate you, my dear listeners, I'm actually going to begin by reading a section of his essay on sovereignty that impacted me so much. So here it is. This is Jordan Hall on sovereignty. I would like to begin with a concept that I think is both deeply powerful and not broadly used. In this case, I am going to be treading the dangerous waters of trying to articulate something that is similar to, and therefore might be mistaken for, a bunch of other concepts that are kind of in the same space. I'm going to take the bold path and challenge you to really think. I'm going to intentionally use a word that typically comes loaded with a whole lot of understanding, and I'm going to reload that word with a meaning that I believe is much more clear and true and useful. That word is sovereignty. By sovereignty, I do not mean the notion that nation states have the right to self-determination on the geopolitical stage. I also don't mean that human individuals are magically able to separate themselves from the rest of the human world and make up their own rules. I mean something very specific, very central to being in the world, and, if properly understood, very empowering. Sovereignty is the capacity to take responsibility. It is the ability to be present to the world and to respond to the world, rather than to be overwhelmed or merely reactive. Sovereignty is to be a conscious agent. As it turns out, sovereignty can be understood as consisting of three distinguishable capacities. Number one, your ability to relate to the world. This includes things like your ability to perceive the world, reality, to be sensitive to what's going on in all sorts of different ways to be able to listen and see and feel, to tune into what is going on without preemptively closing off the world with your own frames or judgments, or to be overwhelmed by what the world is sending at you. Number two, your ability to make sense of the world. This includes your ability to skillfully select frames and concepts that are appropriate to what is really going on, and to create new ones when the old ones won't do. It is a measure of both speed and precision. Move too slowly, and the world has passed you by. Move too haphazardly, and you will confuse sense with error. Number three, your ability to make and affect choice in the world. This includes both the ability to actually move the world with your actions, your ability to deploy a force on the world, and your capacity to do so with both wisdom and elegance. That is, your ability to move from sense to action with sound judgment to make good choices, and your ability to do just and only what you intend, no more, no less, and with as little effort as necessary. Of course, these capacities overlap and mingle with each other. 
This distinction is merely a way of looking at things that might prove helpful in our own practices of sovereignty. Consider, for example, that a major challenge to sovereignty is an imbalance of these capacities. If you have much more ability to perceive the world than you have ability to act in the world, you might feel powerless and non-responsive. If you have much more ability to act than you have the ability to make sense, you might find yourself doing more harm than good. Then, of course, you have the relationship between your own sovereignty and the world that you are trying to navigate. As an infant, your sovereignty is minuscule, and you are entirely dependent on other people to help you survive, and hopefully, to increase your own sovereignty. As you develop, if you're lucky, you learn something. You increase your ability to relate to the world and make sense of it, and ultimately, to make good choices. This is a virtuous cycle. The more good choices you make, the better positioned you are to make good choices in the future. The opposite is also true. If and as you get off track, your sovereignty gets overwhelmed and you get out of balance. Like a boxer who's been stunned by a blow, you might find yourself no longer able to skillfully respond to the world. Not in a good position to make good choices and all too likely to get yourself into trouble. Sovereignty is the center. If you are anchored in sovereignty and able to fully respond to the world, you are able to do the best you can. It might not be enough, but it is the best you can do. If you are out of sovereignty, try as you might, you will not be giving your best. And in the process, you might likely find yourself making things, and yourself, worse off. Thus it is that growing your sovereignty, improving your ability to fully respond to the world, is a singularly useful pursuit. And we are rolling. And we're here at Wildwood in Topanga. And this is my first time meeting you in person here, which is quite a treat because your writing has been uniquely impactful to my particular soul's journey. No pressure. (laughs) I mean, you already did the writing, so it's like I'm not expecting you to necessarily have the same impact in this exact moment. There's no obligation. But I discovered your writing with your situation assessment from 2017. And then, I believe it was 2017. And then I read everything you had on Medium in 2018. Most especially your piece on sovereignty. And as a way of setting the table, I wanted to share with you that the ideas that you have around sovereignty, particularly as one relates to the world, helped wake me up from a somewhat myopic bit of navel-gazing in my own personal growth. And now that the world is knocking louder and louder on everyone's doors, and maybe it always has for many people, but it's certainly knocking louder on my door, I'm curious to talk about how your thinking may have evolved. My audience consists of burners, and psychonauts and world travelers and adventurers and a lot of people who are looking to dynamically expand the width of their being. But that can be a trap. And I feel that you have some really magical ways of poking holes in that particular self-importance. So maybe just a few caveats and context. One thing that I think is not obvious, is uh, that I don't actually read my own stuff. And I don't really know what I've written when I write it. So I'm only vaguely aware of the content of the piece that you just mentioned. Somewhat, but not, not well. How would I say it right? It's something like, 
perhaps as we're talking, we can unfurl that and maybe connect with what is it in that that, that you connected with that brings it to your attention. Sovereignty is the capacity to take responsibility. This is your writing. It is the ability to be present to the world and to respond to the world rather than to be overwhelmed or merely reactive. Sovereignty is to be a conscious agent. And for me, it is the taking responsibility and being present to the world. Because I think when we're on these personal growth journeys, we can get really caught up in a personal mythology. And I think we see this all over in the Burning Man community and in ayahuasca ceremony circles. Um, I am healing. This is my state of being. I am healing. And that can be a cul-de-sac. It's a, I had Jamie Wheel on the show and he talked about believing that you're in the Grail Castle and then realizing you're actually in Hotel California, which I love his, his poetry in that, in that. And the idea of being present to the world you are not sovereign if you're captivated by your own personal mythology, right? So the idea of a sort of primacy of sovereignty as one relates to the world, that was the shift for me. And that led me to start camping at Burners Without Borders. Burners Without Borders seems to be responsible to the world, present to the world. And I still get obviously just caught up in my own sort of meanness and my healing. Oh, my healing, I'm doing my healing. Funny story. This is actually perfectly, perfectly encapsulates this because I'm still very much in this. I was doing a, this is very 2020 as well. I was doing a Zoom call with a therapist doing like deep trauma work because of course I must heal my trauma because my trauma is what prevents me from being sovereign in relation to the world. The kicker is though, you can't heal your trauma and then work on sovereignty. It, if you're constantly caught in the process of, of, of trauma work, then you're actually not engaging with the world. You're kind of opting out until you're ready, right? So I was on a Zoom call with my therapist when Seth barges through the door. There's ash coming from the sky. There's a fire coming up the canyon. We're getting evacuated and we got to go now. You've got a couple of minutes to get your most important things. So from the deep childhood grieving and pendulating in and out of trauma and working and, and then suddenly, yeah, but there's a fire raging up through the canyon. And it, to me, it perfectly encapsulated the state that so many of us are in who wish to um, be the best we can be in the world is it kind of feels like there's not really time to get it all right in one's own being. You know, there's not time to heal all the trauma and then show up for the world. And so how your article about sovereignty was so meaningful to me is it really came down to the capacity to take responsibility, to be present to the world and to respond to the world. And we all must respond to an increasingly demanding set of world circumstances. Okay, yeah, there's some really neat stuff that came up as you were talking. Um, one of the things that came up was like that feeling of never quite actually settling into being literally in the moment, like being in the world right now, but always having something that is ever so slightly preventing that from happening by deference to an imagined possible better that's just right over there. And of course, that's the loop. That's the loop that you get on, which is that you instead of really doing the thing, literally it's as simple as that, you can just sort of do the thing, 
right where you happen to be, where you are, by definition, that's the best you can possibly be right now. Um, and then be in it and just be engaged and begin the learning of, of, of doing, you know, being in what's happening. Which doesn't mean that you can't also have a, an awareness of that and be able to sort of watch yourself and perceive yourself while you're in it, but to never move yourself so fully out of the experience that you're in that you're only in that perspective of watching yourself, but to always be at the very least both. And yeah, I think I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. I don't experience it a lot myself, but this experience, this notion of I'm not yet ready because I haven't yet mapped to an image of what I'd like to call being ready looks like or feels like or I guess sounds like. And so there's a thing that happens to get me to that place. When I get there, I'll be ready and I'll start doing the thing. And of course, the whole point of the thing is exactly not that. The whole point of the thing is just you're ready. You are enough. And there's no way to become more other than simply being here right now and to suffer through the reality of being here in the right now. It's such a weird thing, right? It's like um, I can see why people can get lost because it's very subtle. I'm not saying, for example, that the, as you said, like the trauma work, I'm not saying that's not an important thing. It's crucial. It is the case that you cannot be your sovereignty will be inhibited by the degree to which your trauma is getting in the way of your relationship with reality, for sure. But at the same time, it's really a sign of a deeper trauma, a deeper defense mechanism to delay your relationship with reality until you've resolved your trauma. It's just a trick, yeah? I think that's, you mentioned Jamie Will. Yes. Yeah. And someone else, hmm, they probably don't want to be named publicly, so I'll just, some other friends of mine, um, who have much more experience with the kind of the seeker people, communities. Uh, and, and they've talked about it in the context of, of a smoothly polished ego. Right? So instead of a kind of a rough course ego that you can scale like a, like a good climbing wall, you, you do this work, but the work is almost on behalf of an increasingly subtle ego that is using the polishing of the work to make itself infinitesimal, so therefore impossible to actually get past. There's a lot of that, I think. There's a lot of subtlety. You know, if you've been doing a lot of work, particularly early, like in your 20s and 30s, and particularly within the context of a lot of psychedelics, where you haven't had enough engagement with with life and the complexity of life and the diversity of life to ground it it's like too much too fast what ends up happening is it's almost like you've you've worn down the teeth and the gears and then they start to slip you've stripped the screw yeah and so it gets harder and harder you have to sort of push harder and harder on that to get any friction to be able to move the evolutionary process of self forward. One of your friends, I imagine, she's here in this place. I think her name may be Sarah. Uh, I'm terrible with names. Uh, she said that she was, uh, she was given advice to avoid spiritual work until she was in her 40s. It's like, that may actually be very good advice. You know, it obviously means you're gonna spend a good several decades somehow unguided in your process through life, but it also means that by the time you get the screwdriver to start turning the screw, 
maybe you'll actually know what it is you're about. And so when you turn it, you can turn it deftly and actually get it really out without stripping the, stripping the threads. Well, that certainly leaves us in a bit of a tricky moment because I've been doing a lot of that work. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a very polished persona. And I am very... I went to a therapeutic boarding school so I went hard early because I was a reckless, quote, at-risk youth. And so I was doing three big sessions of group therapy three times a week. I was in a program where there were really crazy rules, like you couldn't sing certain songs, you had to order clothes out of the Land's End catalog, they cut everyone's hair the same way. It was like really odd way of living. And the idea was essentially that if you do the work, if you go deep, that you'll have some kind of liberation or salvation. And at first I tried to run away, which everyone does. And then over time I realized, well, how do I win this game? I win this game by doing the work. And if I do the work, the work is, how do I go deep inside myself, find the broken pieces, divulge them, and, and, and of course cry, because you must cry so that people know that you're doing the work. And if I do that and can present it to this 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 group, this group therapy experience, I will win. I'll both win in kind of like a logistical way of like winning the program and get privileges and not be punished, but I'll also win in that I'll achieve some degree of salvation. And that journey ended with, you know, the rug was pulled out from under me psychologically where I pushed so hard that the whole my whole system shut down emotionally and I went into a pretty deep depression. And so that kind of, in a way, that set the stage for future seeking. So I kind of have a similar thing like, well, if I do enough ayahuasca work, I'm going to keep going deeper. I'm going to find this, this trauma that is inhibiting me from, from being with and in the world. And eventually I'll, I'll extricate it and I'll be able to act. And by then I'll be strong enough to be the hero that the world needs. Because if I'm not strong enough to be the hero that the world needs, I will be swallowed by the enormity of the world's grief. Yeah, you will be swallowed by the enormity of the world's grief. Yeah, you mentioned earlier something about being feeling very called to being a father. And I think that that sounds really right. And I don't necessarily mean the context of uh, kind of willy-nilly producing a child, but... And what I mean is being swallowed by the world's grief. And it's hard to put into words. Um, yeah, it's almost like this, is, this isn't right, but maybe together we can get closer. It's almost like the process that you went through, the place that you were, were at, created an incredibly intense orientation towards interiority. Wow, you're so right. And what I'm what I'm feeling is, huh, like the, the you know what Klein bottle is? I don't. You should ask Eric Weinstein about him. He loves them. <laughs> it's like a you know what a Mobius strip is? Yes. Yeah. So a Klein bottle is like a Mobius strip in in 3D, I suppose, or 4D, whatever the right dimensions are. But one of the characteristics of a Klein bottle is that as you proceed into the bottle, there's a point at which you are in fact now proceeding outside of the bottle. Did you go all the way in? And to go all the way in, in fact, brings you all the way out. And I was feeling something like that, a little bit like, I suppose, the Taurus metaphor as well. 
that the orientation towards an intense interiority resolves itself in a return, a movement of that interiority back out into the exterior, but not working backwards, but actually going forwards, it actually returns. You know, as you said, the the world's grief, like literally the wholeness of the world. Um, and but to feel the wholeness of the world and to hold that and to be torn apart, because by no means could anyone ever hold that. Like to completely go outside, but never stay how do I say this? Continuity of contact with a, with self. So don't extract yourself from yourself. Right? That's you know, projection or, or leaving. But rather the way to go deeper into self is actually to find yourself through connection with another fully. Like complete empathy and not sympathy. Right? Sympathy is when you actually have the feeling in yourself. Empathy is when you actually are literally in and of the other. Something like that. It's it's really crunchy. I, it's, I definitely can't say it even vaguely well, but there's something something there. It makes me think of the line from A Hero with a Thousand Faces, about it's oft quoted, and I, I don't think I'll get it exactly right, but um, we didn't fear the maze ahead for the heroes of all time have gone before us, and where we had thought we found we would find a demon, we will find a god. When we thought we would slay the dragon, we will slay ourselves, and when we thought we would be alone, we would be at one with all the world. And that sort of threshold point in the hero's journey, where the dragon that one must slay is reveals itself to be oneself. That's always been the piece that I've focused on in that quote. But what you've just said, where we thought we'd be alone, we'll be at one with all the world. I think that there's a threshold point in the hero's journey where one goes so into oneself, but just all of the just stuff of yourself, all the stuff that you're like, I need to fix it, I need to work it, whatever. You go all the way in and then you realize that actually you're not different than anyone else. Everyone has that stuff. And maybe that's the point where we start coming back out again. And that's the point where the hero who is still a boy dies and can actually step into his, his space as a man who's part of a community, who's able to be with all the world because he's gone that deep. And so to come back to the fear of stripping the screw, I think the problem with stripping the screw is to do the work, maybe without going deep enough, to do the work from a place of of ego gratification and public performance and to and to only do it as a polishing rather than going through this what did you call it the 3D mobius strip what is that called klein bottle, klein bottle. Klein bottle. Go, so going through a klein bottle and maybe what's one of the challenges that we have in our addiction to personal growth and spiritual transformation is that the the personal growth and spiritual transformation that we are pursuing is very self-guided I'm going to go to Bali to do this yin yoga teacher training and then I'm going to go to Gabon to do a boga and I'm going to go to do this because I am the hero who does these things and then actually there's something it doesn't quite go all the way through it gets close to it does a little like polishing kind of thing comes back and then has an even better ego story to tell that's the very true no question I haven't had a huge experience with um, I suppose your audience <laughs> with the community that communities that Go to Bali, <laughs> but 
Yes. So yes, what you're saying. So there's another piece that you mentioned, I think that's also layers in nicely here, which has to do with a certain sense of epicness mm. and a... It's both the object of the work, why the work, and also a measure of the degree to which the work is being done. There's an expectation that it resolves itself in epicness. You know, it's fucking Bali. It's not Cleveland. You know, I'm not going to Cleveland to like, you know, wipe somebody's ass. I'm going to Bali to heal. And it goes to that notion of the story. Yeah, let's hold that for a second, actually. This is new or relating to some new stuff. So the notion of the story, I think, is very important. There's a relationship, intrinsic relationship, between the, the encrustation that forms itself around the self and narrative and the kind of mind that tells narrative and the kind of culture that is produced by that kind of mind and produces and manipulates that kind of mind to do its bidding. If we desire to escape from, to liberate ourselves from that kind of culture, then we, f then we must find a way to get beyond narrative and the kind of mind that operates through and produces narrative. Well, you have one of those minds sitting before you, uh, staunchly so. I did my healing journey with the express desire to write a book about it. I have so many feathers in my cap from the transformational work that I've done. I am absolutely the person that you are talking about, and I desperately seek liberation from it. And it's funny because you would imagine, <laughs> I heard the word Vipassana, I thought, spoken as if it was done in Ibiza. Um, <laughs> I did mine in Canada, actually. Oh, yeah, cool. I did my vipassana on the open plains of Alberta and in a, in a converted old folks' home. So it was actually, but you know what? Here, here we go with the narrative. I did it in a converted old folks' home. Therefore, I am more humble than the exquisite pagoda, and I'm once again telling a story about myself. Right. Um, having done it, oh well, I did it in this particular unusual way. So it's sort of like I didn't move to the big, beautiful city of New York, but I went to like Boulder, which is kind of like interesting and quirky. And I made that choice. And why did I make that choice? Don't you want to know more about me? So exactly, it's the same, it's the narrative. You know, I'm constantly trying to tell a story about myself so that I can create meaning around being and so that I can share that story and I can be included and wanted and, and, and lauded and praised and maybe build a brand and maybe then, you know, but to what end, right? It's, but I, I am that person. Yeah, <laughs> very well. I mean, I, you, you, you narrated the story of uh, the old folks' home, I think, exactly right. Um, so let's go in there, because the challenge is how does one liberate oneself from that? Because the notion of Vipassana might be prescribed as the appropriate drug of choice when one is uh, afflicted by, by narrative. Oh, well, why don't we just not talk for a million years? But clearly it doesn't work. It's very important. It has, it has salutary effects for sure, but it does not seem to resolve the problem. I have got some good evidence from people who've spent time with sort of the extremely advanced practitioners, in fact, the founder of Vipassana, and their first person experience was not really. So this challenge of how do we actually transcend, I think transcend is the right term, how do we transcend narrative mind, hmm. is non-trivial.
And by hypothesis, we might even say that many, if not most, if not all, of the, the answers that we find ready at hand perhaps aren't, won't work, or at least they won't work in the way that we need them to or won't work adequately. I'll admit I got a little distracted because someone shouted outside and I was suddenly very upset with them. How dare you ruin my perfect moment? So why don't we slow that down? Okay. So <laughs> you had a physical response, right? I did. I had a, I had like a, I was, I, I was angry at them and I was like, and, and then I stopped listening to what you were saying because I was so worried that I wouldn't be present with you that I stopped being present with you. Right. So there's a self-judgment. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So there's a monitoring. There's a thing there that's monitoring your behavior and your responses. And then at a very subtle level, like very quickly, intercepting what's happening and then directing it. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, there's an accompanying physical contraction in my belly that's kind of like this, in a, in a way, danger. You know, in a way, like I have mapped out, my, my narrative now is that I have you, someone who I've admired for a while, on my show. And that means that I personally get an incredible experience with you and I want it to be perfect. And hopefully for some of the people um, listening who've not known about you to then go down the same wormhole I did with your thinking and with what you share with the world. And so in that moment of hearing someone outside putting on laundry and, and sort of shouting at someone else, it felt like a personal attack on me. Right. And in some sense it was, because something that you cared about, something that you loved, something that you wanted to protect, was actually under threat. And so there was an actual attack, right? At the body level, like as a mammal, like a million years ago, the basic sense was something I care about is under threat. And you could think, like make it very basic, like physiological. There was an increase in adrenaline. There's an increase in cortisol. Right? There's probably a, a dilation of your, of your uh, veins and arteries. Like the, your breathing probably increased a lot, slightly, right? So it's a physiological response. And then the next thing though, which I think is where the, the point, the sharp point of the spear is, is that, and then there was an almost immediate reaction in narrative. There was a reaction in narrative, and I also had like a little like blackout moment too. Like I was very dialed with you. I was hanging on your every word. I was like ready for the next thing. Um, we're doing an interview. Would you mind being quiet outside? Thank you. Dude, this is also like the music space. So there's like there's a. <laughs> And now I hate that person. Yeah, you hate him. I hate him. Right. Right. When when he came back to say, Oh, this is the music like I was just like, fuck you. Oh, I just got like like adversary well, energy. So when I what I noticed that is that I mean, from my perspective, what I was feeling was like a little bit of passive aggressive on his part. I could be wrong. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, that, I, I picked that up too. Yeah. yeah. But what what I noticed when I think that is like there's two responses that happen simultaneously in me. One is fight. Uh, there's a there's a passive aggressive and almost like okay there's a conflict here, and and these conflicts are mostly mammal, right? they're mostly animal, which is you know the appropriate response is for me to just like get up and fuck them right just beat the shit out of them or you know do something like the body's you know the simple mammal like the pack animal thing, make that kind of threat of violence, which is what you know two million years ago would have happened. Right? And there would have been an appropriate kind of look and growl, and the dominant position would have been established, and we would have been done with things. And we don't have that now. We don't do that, and it's probably not something we could elegantly handle. But then the second thing that came up was actually this awareness of, well, actually, I don't know what's happening. 
mean, the context is very wide open. Maybe he's trying to be helpful. Maybe he's maybe both are true, right? In fact, both are probably true. And how do I then sit with the situation I'm in right now to find a way of responding to the circumstance that is just simply going to be helpful? And what's just a, what's the most what's is there's a, a a teacher of mine actually, a gentleman named Yasuhiko. He said something which I thought was quite nice, and I, I added a little addendum to it. He said, "You know, you're always going to be faced with with creating a narrative." So you can always choose to select the most empowering narrative, which I might call the most helpful narrative. And I just added the very last, last bit, the most empowering narrative that is also true, meaning try to hold yourself to at least a, a good faith relationship with, with your best sense of what is real, which doesn't necessarily mean being dogmatic about it. There's something there, I think. There's something about having a sense of honoring that anger. You know? Okay, good. Something that you care about is being threatened. And anger is just a building up of energy in the body to be able to resist, to protect. Right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, to fight if necessary. Thank you. Thank you, anger, for coming up to protect that which I care about. And now, though, my, my more noble self, which is aware of that, is now aware of what's happening, is seeing what's going on, is perhaps in a position to orient towards a way of supporting myself to respond. So it's, you can own those narratives. I mean, you can kind of double-click on them. They're just, almost all of it is made up. And certainly all of it's projection. By, pro- by projection, what I mean is geometrically. Like it's a very high-dimensional space compressed to a tiny-dimensional space. You know, any narrative is going to be a minuscule fraction of the complex reality that it's actually responding to. So that you can take, you can take responsibility for the narratives, which is, which is sort of different than trying to simply shut them down or being beholden to them willy-nilly and just allowing them to play. And I think there's something powerful there, very empowering to say, okay, fair enough, the narratives are going to come. How do I seek the place from which to choose the more empowering narrative? Notice the complexity of that. So the empowering narrative for me now in this moment is what a splendid and perfect opportunity to then have in practice in this moment what we're discussing in this moment. What a gift. I can choose to have that moment be a gift and have my the narrative that I would choose of all the different narratives is we're here to do this thing and it's an emergent experience. You know, you and I love that you've talked about how you write in a flow and then sometimes you don't even know what you've written. And I feel that way too about podcasting and about talks that I give. So this is an emergent moment. And this man who I feel so affronted by is part of our emergent moment together. And he's popped his head in to say, I'm going to knock you off your sovereignty mm-hmm. while you're talking about sovereignty. Yes. And you're not going to be able to make the most of every single moment you have with this person you admire because I've come in to take that away from you. And now you have an option to respond to that. How are you going to respond to that? Does that throw the interview for you? And if it does, that's the perfect example of losing your sovereignty in the face of the world, right? Yep. If that throws the interview. But, but I guess my question would be, we're talking about the problems with narrative. And, and, and what I believe I'm hearing you say here is that the position of most sovereignty, perhaps, is to be able to see different narratives, recognize that you're a meaning-making monkey who will choose one, and choose the one that is most generative for you and those around you. Yes. If that's the case, then to choose the narrative that this imposition is a gift 
and we are going to wrap it into our conversation and it's going to elevate our conversation, then that is the narrative that would then infer upon me and us the most potential sovereignty to act in accordance with our, with our deepest wishes. Is that accurate? Yes. Now, let's hold it. There's, a, there's, a, there's another side, like a, the flip, which is equally dangerous. I believe it's called spiritual bypass. Oh, yeah. Um, and what came to my mind when you were talking was something like, like being in a kayak in a river. So the other thing that you can do is you can escape reality by recognizing your capacity to control the narrative. I can always interpret everything any way I want. So what oh. I can do is avoid being in reality at all by simply telling a different story about what's happening. Oh, it's all perfect. No, no, you just fucked up. No, no, it's all perfect. See, both sides, you know, it's the riverbank and the not paddling the boat are both being away from reality, are both a way of avoiding responsibility, about getting you off your sovereignty. And so the challenge is to find that most empowering narrative, which is also true, which is to say, keep it connected with reality. Right? There was the, the challenge is to, is to become more and more, how do I say this, like, I've used this metaphor in the past that I think I actually took from John Verveke of, uh, of the hand and the hand uh, grasping something, you know, grasping an apple and, and of learning how to bring your hand into the shape of the apple so that it can really fully grasp the apple and hold it well. Not squeeze it so tightly that you break it, not so lightly that you can't pull it from the tree. You know, the deftness of confirmation with reality. And I would say that that's the, that's the calling. Right, that's the challenge. And that there's a being beholden to narratives that are not of your making, that are pulling you away from that reality, that are disempowering your capacity to be in response to reality. And there are narratives that are separating you from reality, that are you're using those narratives to protect yourself from being in relationship with reality. And, and both are, you know, I would say error conditions, right? They're both things that are pulling you out of that, that space in the center, a space of really, really rich. So hold on, there's one more thing here that seems just very practical. I think the point is to really ground it. It's very practical. It's, um, you know, if you're, if you're in a fight, there's a proper disposition to be in. You know, if, if, if you're panicked, you're going to get beat up. If you're foolhardy, you're going to get beat up. Right? If you're if you're letting the other guy get in your head, if you're telling narratives about what a bad guy he is, you're gonna get you're gonna make mistakes. Right? There's a proper disposition to be able to sort of really be present to what's actually happening, which is that you're in a fight, and to feel you know, just think about. Have you ever been in a fight? I don't think I've been in what would qualify as an actual fight. I've been punched before. I've had like fight, 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 and then getting punched and being like, I'm done fighting now. I'm not much of a fighter of that kind. It's useful because it has that, that nice sort of simplicity to it. Right? The getting punched in the face is a very simple feedback loop. <laughs> it's quick, it's, it's concrete, but it has that, it, it's you know, these physical things like uh, you know, dance or juggling. And again, juggling is the same thing. Like this happens when you, you know, are you in your head? Are you, are you angry? Uh, you drop the ball? Are you making stories about how bad you are? Stories about that? Like you're getting in your own way, but it's at the end of the day, it's very practical. Like to live life is like juggling. To live life is like being in a fight. To live life is like cooking. You just have to learn how to choose dispositional frames, choose narratives that allow your body and your mind to get into a place that allows them to be most effectively relational with the environment that you're in. That's it. It's as simple as that, right? The, the point is to say, hey, 
I'm not talking about trying to confuse myself. I'm not trying to dispense with the rigor of thinking. I'm just recognizing that there's, before I'm even thinking, there's disposition and there's capacity and that I need to create the context for myself that gives me the maximum capacity and an appropriate disposition to respond to the context that I'm in, then I'll start using other tools that are in front of me to begin to, to engage in that response. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that maybe we can take a pressing real world example to apply some of what we're talking about. So we've been talking about me in a moment. Let's take something that's kind of a big deal and that I think you're a really great person to talk about. You were talking about choosing the narrative that is most efficacious to what is needed and also true. Is that a good phrasing for... Okay. Sure. There are spiritual people, so-called spiritual people, on the path drinking plant medicine who are now devotees of QAnon. Mm-hmm. Who are saying things like, Trump is a light worker, I'm going to be voting for Trump, or, you know... I'm not voting at all. And I can imagine how these individuals have chosen what they feel to be a superior master narrative. And your caveat there was, that is also true. But the affront on sovereignty is that we don't know what is true in a broad sense. So delineating what is actually true is so important. And there are things that 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 disgust our sensibilities. So there's a group of elite pedophiles that I can be a noble warrior against. Now, I could choose that narrative, and then you have Jeffrey Epstein. And so Jeffrey Epstein proves that. He is an elite, he was or is, you know, who knows if he's actually died. I don't know that either, right? But an elite pedophile who is enabled by other elite potential pedophiles, right? So there is, to the best of my knowledge, Jeffrey Epstein was a pedophile. That is to the best of my knowledge. And I can then extrapolate that he was enabled by this group of people. And then I can further extrapolate that that is a conspiracy. And then I can further extrapolate that there are those fighting this conspiracy that I could become part of. And I can find my way to QAnon, which seems, to someone like me, QAnon seems the absolute edge of ridiculousness. You've written about QAnon, and actually you were, you were writing about QAnon was the first time I even got it at all. I was just like, this is crazy and stupid. And, and, what you, and when you wrote about it, I was like, wow, this is actually really powerful stuff. These are weirdly powerful narratives. And so now we have members of the you know, spiritual community, the burner community, the plant medicine community, who are actually becoming followers of QAnon. So I wonder if we can take that particular thorny problem and we can use some of what we're trying to build in terms of tools for sovereignty to maybe help people disentangle themselves from that particular bear trap. Yeah, I think we sure as fuck can. Well, let's do it. Because we need, I mean, honestly, if we can do it well, then this audio will be far more useful Mm -hmm. than simply to get over my addiction to ceremonies. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, so there's what's a, I'll use I'll use Daniel language. Well, don't use too much Daniel language because no, we bit. need to get everyone to be able to follow no, us. Just put a drop in, <laughs> just some fun. And that's uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, yeah. by the way, who is your co-founder in the Neurohacker Collective. He's wanna, my friend. He's your friend. Yeah, I want to make sure that you know we're a little bit located on on all these magical people. Uh, epistemological humility. Mm, yeah, epistemological like humility, and you walked us through a little bit, right? 
Although you, you jumped ahead. I, I, I'm not sure what your confidence interval should be on the notion that Jeffrey Epstein is a pedophile. Mm. I'm actually not sure what my personal com- confidence interval is on the fact that he existed at all. I never met him. I know that I don't trust media that much. Now, as it turns out, Daniel did meet him. And I do know Daniel quite well, and I trust Daniel's capacity to tell the truth and his perceptive faculties. So I have a reasonably high confidence interval that Jeffrey Epstein was a real person. But this carefulness around what do I actually know, right? What is my, what is my confidence interval on the things that I'm taking to be true, to be real? And then how quickly do I leap to inferences? There's a, a really interesting line in the book, Strangers in, in a, Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, where a character, Jubal Hershaw, is asking one of his assistants as a, almost a demonstration of her, her, her epistemological humility. He asks her a question. It was something along the lines of, you know, what do you see? Like, what do I look like? And she very specifically described precisely and only what she could see, which is to say, for example, I don't actually see the back of your head. I'm merely inferring that you have a back of your head. It's a useful inference, and I will continue to operate on that basis. Uh, but I don't have perception of it. It's very important to recognize that I actually have the slightest idea, and the back of your head may be shaved. I don't know. You could have shaved it when you went out. I just have, a, have an inference. And so th- I'm using this as a tool to say, hey, epistemologic humility as a tool will help us very powerfully recognize that we don't actually have much of a clue what the fuck's going on. And we have these giant tools, the whole internet, that through inference and through hearsay generates a vast simulation of what the fuck's going on that has various degrees of confidence. And unfortunately, we have way, way too much information. Way, way, way. And that information is kind of ensconced in these kind of outrage machine triggers. So it's not just inf- it's not just tons of information you have right. to sift through. It's information that hooks our particular traumas, hooks our particular fully prejudices. Yeah, exactly. It's fully weaponized and getting better every second, every nanosecond. If you listen to Tristan, um, so great. So we got way, way too much information. Our own epistemological cleanliness is quite poor. The information field we're, in, we're enmeshed in is fully weaponized. Our developmental environment is shitty. And so this, so I would propose strong epistemological humility. Okay, if, if you think you know what's going on, you're definitely wrong. Okay, cool, it's now like what do I do? Dunning, Dunning-Kruger curve, always ever sliding down the Dunning-Kruger right. curve. Right, so okay, okay, now, so now if I have, have that, then it's something like, all right, how do I select the most empowering narrative? Because now I have to be quite careful. Because I'm definitely not trying to tell a big fucking story. And as soon as I try to tell a really big story about what's going on, I'm almost certainly imposing all kinds of nonsense on top of reality. It's just inevitable. Because reality is vast. And centering yourself as an important hero in it. So like the oneness of all things in ayahuasca work, like, oh my God, I'm the divine. I'm the center of a beatific story. But the conspiracy theory is I'm the center of a, of, an, of a horrible story, but I'm still the center of it. I'm uniquely in the know, and therefore my actions can actually affect global results. But I'm it's still a big story. I'm working very hard to actually do the virtuous thing, which is to be aware of what's true. Right? That's, that's the, the, the essence of the conspiracy theory is, oh my God, 
uh, falsehood and malevolence surrounds us, and I'm working overtime, searching and researching and checking and cross-checking, like trying to find original newspaper prints of like the 1970s to see what was really said so that I can do the virtuous thing, which is to be a good participant in our collaborative, collective effort to make sense of what's going on so we can make effective choices in the world together. Right? That's the the deep essence of it is to play is to play that role, which of course can also it's bolstered then. So there's two pieces going on. One is almost a an honorable endeavor and a fundamental human responsibility to play the role of being a good faith collaborative sense maker in the case of in, under duress. And then you have this other piece, which is this piece of aggrandizement, and this piece of and I am special or uh, heroic, yeah, epic. And so if we can lance the and aggrandizement, then we can pop the boil and we can still do our diligent work of sense making and we can be, you know, go into those old articles and find the thing. As long as we don't put ourselves in the grand center of it, are we more likely to then discover the closest thing we can get to truth? Is the only piece the the humility? Is that the only piece we need? Or is there more to it than that? Well it's a very powerful piece. I wouldn't say it's the only piece. It's very powerful. And also this notion of decentering. So the epistemological humility brings with it not just a, a notion of, hey, of what are you truly certain? And the answer should be very little. But also then a notion of curiosity, which is the inverse, stepping into wonder. So humility then creates space for curiosity. Huh, well, if I don't really know that much of what's happening, and if, if most of what I think is going on is my own projection and frankly quite weak sauce models about the nature of reality, then I'm also opened up to the possibility that things are happening that I don't even really understand. For this, this is what really a part of what I was trying to do in that piece, which is say, "Hey, here's a different story. This in this story, what's happening is that there's a an emergent form of distributed cognition that is as profound as the emergence of cognition in individual human beings that happened a million years ago. That is happening between and among all of us in the context of these new media, and this new form of distributed cognition is trying to find itself. It's trying to learn how to be a collaborative sense-making capacity in the in the new environment. Um, and QAnon is an example of that. Right? It cannot help but be an example of that because it's happening in the in the environment that we're in, meaning which we're describing, like massive amounts of information, most of it highly weaponized. Very difficult for any given individual perspective to even have a thin slice of what's going on, but huge amounts of communication capacity, collaborative possibility is huge. There's like an engine turning. And, and the point of it is, is I don't want to say that the story that I'm telling is, 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 like, is true. It's really the point is to say, hey, wait a minute, that's actually a really interesting story. And it's different than a lot of the other stories. And it's actually in some sense very novel. Like it's not a story that's being told. And it situates me as a participant in this, in this experience, in the, in the phenomenon, the QAnon phenomenon. Whatever role I'm playing, my situation in that is now very different than I had positioned it. Right? I'm either, you know, the, in the old story, and I, the way I even told it is that, look, there's kind of two stories that dominate. Story number one is kind of the New York Times version. The New York Times position or, or identity, of course, plays, positions you as the hero, holding right-thinking, responsible, consideration, frankly, rationality, certainly integrity, and, and therefore alliance with the good, with you, and the guys who are doing this other thing are you know, insane or maybe malevolent or you know, a variety, variety of bad things, throw a bunch of bad adjectives. Uh, and then, of course, you flip it. If you're now on the uh, a QAnon devotee, 
then the narrative is a narrative of no, no, you guys are the ones who are largely duped, right? You're you're delude, you're, you're you've been tricked by a, a profound what is it? What do they call it? Story, uh, movie, or something like that? You know, some some fabrication, uh, or you're a bad guy. There's lots of bad guys, and we're working hard, like we're diligently digging and put, piecing things together. And we're getting a picture of the story, and as you said, the bad guys are super bad, like really evil. And we're on the side of good, right? And so there's like this good, evil simplicity and the positioning of the other side and then a narrative that makes that, you know, hermetic. Like we hermetically seal the narrative. We can kind of like take the edge cases and sort of smooth them out so my narrative fits really nicely. I don't have to worry too hard and I can go to bed at night. And I'm proposing, hey, here's a whole other narrative. Here's a totally different way of looking at it, which is oblique to both of those. It doesn't have either one. It makes it actually very difficult to have a notion of good and evil because it's more like development, it's more like the emergence of the amoeba. It's like, okay, it's just a thing that's happening in the world and we're watching it and there's really interesting ways to be in relationship with it and to notice where it can create effects that we wouldn't like, which is also called bad. I'm referencing Nietzsche's distinction between good and evil and good and bad. And there's ways perhaps that we can start to begin to, to nurture this emergent phenomenon to be able to respond to the complexity of the world that we're in. Right? One of the points that I make in one of my earlier, well, one of the points that I'm trying to make in the world in general, let's just put it that way, is one of the biggest problems, if, it, if not the biggest, very high in the stack, is that we don't actually yet have the capacity to deal with the problems that we're facing. It's like a meta problem. You can identify a whole bunch of problems. There's climate change and there's political instability and there's racism, like fill in the blank, lots of lots of problems. But if I look at a given problem and I think about how hard it is to actually resolve the problem, and bizarrely enough, you can kind of measure that. You can measure it in terms of the complexity of the problem. And then I look at the tools that I have to resolve problems. You know, think again very simply, like this is a, like a mechanics toolbox. You know, I've got a problem that is a size 93 problem, and the only ratchet I have is a 16. If you think about that simply, like, wow, you're kind of fucked. You can't possibly turn that... You know, solve that problem. Your wretch is not the right kind of size. And the, the insight is to say, hey guys, guess what? That's where we are. Like, almost all of the problems that we're dealing with are vastly, and I mean vastly, like six to 10 orders of magnitude more complex than the most powerful tools that we have for making sense of and responding to problems in general. And these problems are not alone. Right? They feed back on each other. They are related to each other in increasing levels of complexity. So the meta crisis, right, the meta set of problems that are in relationship with each other, the tough nut to crack, is sort of extraordinarily beyond our capacities. Well, therefore, if we want to do anything besides delude ourselves or fail stupidly, we have to earnestly begin to think about what would it look like for us to be to create or to participate in the creation of the emergence of, something that does have the capacity to respond to these crises. And it's, I think that feels, feels pretty simple, right? You know, if I've got a 10-pound weight and I can only lift two pounds, then I can either not lift the weight or I can become capable of lifting 10 pounds. Like That's all I'm saying. And so then let's back that off. Okay, well, in that context, if I'm looking at it from that point of view, then all the stuff that we tend to get very irked about the one you just mentioned, you know, the, the sort of interesting elision of certain subsets of the spiritual secret Burning Man community into the QAnon orbit and its relationship to politics 
and potentially violence, for example, are like tiny, tiny minor blips in the larger field of the metacrisis. And that's a very empowering frame in some sense because it allows you to not get caught up in things that are, wouldn't, aren't going to be resolved anyway because we don't have the tools to resolve them. And trying to resolve them using the tools that we have generally will make them worse. Hmm, okay. So now you're faced with a super hard problem, but at least it's a well-framed problem, which is what might we do? How might we go about? What might it even look like or feel like to participate in or discover or imagine a way of increasing our capacity, quite vastly, by the way, quite significantly, so that we are equal to the problems that we're facing? And this is the thing. Huh, QAnon is kind of of that sort. It's not the right answer. It's the beginning of a kind of tool that could be used, but it's being used in service of the wrong thing. So it's like kind of the swarm dynamics that you were talking about in kind of like the meme wars. It's, it's, it's a kind of decentralized sense-making, but it's in service of a kind of nefarious end. Is that- Maybe. No, I can't say that. I can say that it's, uh, it's chaotic, what I would say. Mm-hmm. Right, so, and there are, certainly those who, there are certainly those who use it in service of a nefarious end. There are certainly those who use it in service of a, of a noble end. I mean, to, to quash human trafficking and, and uh, pedophilia is, a, I think, quite virtuous. So as an aspiration, and, and there's a non-trivial amount of that, but it's chaotic. I think that's kind of the deeper sense of it. It's chaotic as hell and, and, and potentially quite powerful. Right? So you've got chaos and power combined are challenging. Now, in the context of the blue church, it's 100% dangerous. And, and I think maybe just briefly, just for the sake of the audience, the blue church, I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is. So the blue church is a kind of established consensus group of institutions and norms that um, are largely kind of democratic left-leaning, you know, like New York Times and, and Hollywood, and, and they're sort of telling a kind of monolithic sort of top-down narrative. And that this sort of loosely affiliated organization of, of mutual sort of goals came about in the 20th century and kind of won, like won the kind of political landscape largely. And now it is being, there's an insurgency of what you call the red religion, which is this kind of decentralized opposition to these bigger institutions that are basically, the institutions are too big to compete with. Like the aircraft carrier can't turn fast enough. Yeah, so there's, to kind of disambiguate, there's sort of a distinction between the how and the what and the who. And the how is more fundamental. So the blue church is a particular way of generating effective collaborative sense-making and collaborative choice-making. It, it was an emergent uh, res, uh, response to the need for that. So coming out of largely World War II, the discovery of m- highly meritocratic institutions that use things like, say, form, say, standardized testing, for example, or you know, vertical hierarchical meritocracy with established authority rules that came down, like Six Sigma and the GE model, like things like that. I mean, if, you, if you're not sort of familiar with the history, that's not necessarily how the world worked in 1897. We grew up in that environment, you know, getting good grades, everybody going to college, these sort of blue church notions. And the how was a very profound innovation and is extraordinarily successful. Right? It's key to hold that. And it built up this whole thing that happened in the 20th century. And as you say, almost, it's not entirely willy-nilly, but as it turns out, it, it began to largely become something that was highly connected with uh, what we call the political left now. 
I'm not sure that's obligatory. And certainly, if I if I run the clock back to the 50s, it wasn't the case at all. Right? The, the 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 things that are blue church institutions in the 50s had a very different content to them, but it has become that over time. So then, what happened is because the who of the people who were holding a different set of values than had become held by the blue church institutions of the now had no place to go. They were forced to go through what's called a valley crossing in evolutionary theory, meaning they couldn't play the game and win. So they had to try to find a new game, a new how. And so they began going through the struggling, the process of discovering ways to participate in new forms of sense-making, which we happen to be in a context where that's available, right? The internet, came after the Blue Church's heyday. Right? The Blue Church was sort of at its strongest central like coherence in the 70s, the late 70s. It's kind of been degrading ever since then. And the internet came after that. And so, but the internet was never really mastered. It was always sort of exapted by older techniques. So what happened was is the, red, the red religion was, is an emergent experiment in how to actually use these new media forms to engage in collective sense-making and, and agency in the context of an older, much more powerful, more robust infrastructure, but one that is somewhat obsolete and is declining in capacity on a continuing basis. So that was what that that insight was about. And I should say, by the way, that since that piece was written in 2017, you know, we've seen significant increases in what you might call the blue insurgency. All the stuff that's going on right now in these sort of more decentralized networks that are happening almost as, as eruptions that don't seem to have, that are more network-based. So like a, a blue insurgency would be more like Black Lives Matter Very much versus so. like a red insurgency being like racist memes in support of Trump. I mean, that might be diminutive. Uh, Pepe. But Pepe, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a racist meme in support of Trump. Yeah, if you'd like. Um, yeah. Um, I can choose a more empowering narrative because the word racist these days comes so heavily loaded with inference and consequence. Well, you can see which, you know, which of the blue or red I am most my my yeah. programming is most associated with. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I immediately would say, well, Black Lives Matter is like that's my good side that I'm on, and then the racist memes in support of Trump. So actually, even in that moment as I was speaking, you can kind of see like where my sense making is in orientation to these two sides. Precisely. Yeah. And 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 my proposition is again not like definitely not like relativism. I'm not saying it's all willy nilly. You know, just kind of throw up your hands. What I'm saying is. You know, kind of be careful. You know, the, and the word racism is a fantastic one because as far as I understand it, when you say racist, what you really mean is bad. Right? It's, almost, it's almost become bad. It doesn't even really, as far as I know, even have any real content. I've actually noticed my teenagers using the term that, in a way that confuses me because we have a whole lot of words, by the way. We have words like bias and prejudice and, uh, oh gosh, what's the other one? Bigotry. All kinds of really good words that describe very specific phenomena in psychology and relationship in uh, sociology and, and things like that. And the word racist is sort of being now used to mean almost all of them because what it really sort of just means is like bad. With regard to the sub subcontext of, uh, I suppose, something like ethnicity. It's a little bit of an aside, but the point is say, epistemological humility. An animation that barely looks like a frog that said that expresses certain things that certainly makes me feel this way. You can talk about your own interior very cleanly. And that I and I have concerns about. That's real. And those concerns look like this. And you can do that too. That's very powerful. Dialogue as opposed to narrative. And an invitation to dialogue is a, is I think the a part of this post-narrative frame is to say, okay, what can I say with integrity? Really with integrity. So from 
humility, then move to integrity. I just want to notice something here. I'm clocking more easily when I can have an embodied experience example. So the the topics that we're talking about and the language that they're couched in are hard. You know, it's hard it's hard for me and I've read a lot of your stuff and I have a little bit of a fear that our listener is is getting a little bit left behind in certain moments. Right. And yet, and yet when it is embodied then suddenly I'm like snapping to it. So that example of racism just now feels more accessible to me in part because I can feel it playing out in my own actual physical body. Like there's a slight moment of when you were like, if you will, there was a tiny little comment you made when I said Pepe, the racist frog. You said a little, if you will. I had a slight moment of like, oh, did I do a bad thing? Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, oh, what was that? And instead of deciding to kind of let that calcify and be like, oh no, I'm not a good, like whatever narrative I wanted to go in, I double clicked on it, right? And then that allowed me to use the example of my embodied experience to then better elucidate what we've been talking about. Um, And one of the things that you're saying about sovereignty is that if it is in our integrity and if we have the capacity, that boosting others' sovereignty is is one of the most important things that we can give to the world right now. Yes. Right? That's what I'm trying to do here now with you. Yes. And so I'm using myself as an example because it's not that I'm not as smart as you. I'm smart in my own way, and that's a that's a kind of a silly way of doing it anyway. But the depth of your knowledge and the scope of what you have to choose from in the context of this conversation is vaster than mine. And so I am tracking, but I'm also like a little bit like a little bit playing catch up ever so slightly as we speak. And then when it gets a little bit more embodied, then it like brings me right into the moment. And that's kind of like the fist fight we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Like in the moment, because I'm attuned to how my body is experiencing it and it's kind of grounding it. So I just wanted to flag that. And, and, and in flagging that, I want to be mindful of the fact that I'd like to land. You know, there's a vast place that there's so much we can go to. There's so many things. Like, let's do spiral dynamics. Let's, you know, all the things. I want to land. And, and, and so I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little bit of a recap. So there is a crisis in sense making broadly. And I would even say my perception is that there is a crisis in sense making. You know, that's probably a better way of saying it. In my own self, I've observed being caught up in a narrative of almost reckless personal growth, of a, a kind of cul-de-sac of spiritual transformation. I'm concerned about that in me, and I want better sense making, and I want more sovereignty in relation to that, so that I'm less myopic and navel gazing, and I'm more able to actually meet the world that is literally on fire. Then we look at kind of the community that I'm most a part of, where we're seeing a lot of this like spiritual people who are saying that Trump's a light worker. And I, th- I believe that that is wrong. My perspective of that is wrong. And more importantly, harmful and dangerous with an election looming where I don't think that it's even the lesser of two evils. I think we're choosing between fascism and something that is not necessarily what we want and a bit of a continuation of the old, but not another evil. So again, that's my perspective. And, so, and I believe that that's really important right now, that, 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 that I'm helping people have awareness of that these stakes are high and that, that we need to snap out of our own kind of games about ourselves and our, to actually like participate in this election. I think that a, a re-election of Donald Trump is, I believe that that is the wrong thing. Um, 
I think that by, when talking about the blue church, Biden is a continuation, obviously, of an attempt to, to maintain that, perhaps. I, I'm seeing looks on your face and wondering if I'm, make, if I'm presenting too many assumptions. No, this, is, this, is, this is good. The looks you're seeing are me um, being lifted by what you're saying. Okay. Just a more interesting in, in myself. Like I'm getting more insight or more clear, more, uh, it's good. Okay, I'm about to open the gate for you too. So the place that we're at now is, and, this, and I, want to, I want us to come home with, a, with a, a remembering that life is a festival, life is joy, life is adventure, life is explore mode. You have children, you have an, a, a lovely young child on this property here that you want to create a beautiful world for, but you also want to live in joy. So can we get over this hump of, of this kind of confusion and alienation and post-truth world to a place where we can actually be our best selves to meet the tasks at hand and still live a life full of joy? That's where I'd ultimately like to go. And I feel like there's a hump that we're kind of right on. And I wonder how we would get over the hump to kind of look at what do we do with all this now? Yeah, this is great. So the, 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 the image or the notion that came to me was um, like being a person on the outside of a burning building. And, and the build inside the building are things that you care about. Perhaps things that you care about quite a bit. Let's make it really intense. Three kids in separate rooms because stories like this have lots of challenge to them. And you're faced with the choice, the challenge of what do you do? And you know that if you go into the building, there's a decent likelihood that you won't make it back out. And you know that every time you go into the building, the likelihood goes up. And you know that if, say, for example, let's say, I mean, think about how intense this is. You go in, you say one child, if you go back in and you die, you've now saved one child, but actually left that child without a parent and missing siblings. So it's a hard choice. Hard choice. You need to be very, very fucking real. Right? You better not be telling stories. You need to be right smack dab, right on the handle of what is possible at the maximum level. I'm using that. It comes to me because the, the, this, this happens a lot, I think, particularly in politics. So... So you have a sense, right? you have a sense of the, of the nature of, of what's up, the uh, nature of there is not being a choice between good and evil or two, lesser of two evils and that sort of thing. And you'd like to, to live according to the, both the values that you feel deeply and the model that you feel is, is right, is correct. But there's like, you know, half the population feels exactly the opposite and equally intensely. This is a real interesting thing, right? There's, there's very few people, or less and less people, who are kind of like, eh, on <laughs> the story, right? It's becoming increasingly polarized, but the polarization has intensity of, of, of significant magnitude. And the reason why I bring that up is to say it's kind of like that burning fire. What's really practical? Like, What's the likelihood that there's going to be a thing that can be done by us, by any of us, by me, by you, by any collection of us, that's actually going to resolve that problem. Like really actually resolve the problem. I mean, think it through. Imagine if there's a circumstance where, you know, let's just, you can, I've, I've, game, I've gamed out all the scenarios where, where, where Biden wins. Are we better off? If so, for how long? And what happens? I can tell you that if I run the games, and most of the people I've talked to have run the games, it's 
not necessarily a very good scenario because the context, the, you know, the, the water is boiling and we've moved from one point in the boiling water to another point in the boiling water, but we're still in a cauldron of boiling water. Um, the inverse is also not a particularly good place. If there's not a lot of trajectories through that particular scenario space that are good. Okay, well, what, what I think of when I think of that is to say, well, then we're probably not really looking at the problem well. The, mm. the, the problem is a, is a bigger, deeper, more profound problem. And yes, there are definitely circumstances, back to my fire scenario, right? There's definitely circumstances where we may need to do things in the right now that are ameliorative, that they, they're not going to solve the problem, so but they create space. That's the key. Like, I think that it's ameliorative to elect Joe Biden, but more importantly, I think that it's, it's more, most important it's to get out of like, the conspiracy thinking and to protect oneself against being tricked by, by what is at play around us. Yeah, so yeah, it may be ameliorative, right? But if you take it in that in that frame, then you recognize that it is merely ameliorative, and, and likely briefly. And it's, it's more like a painkiller than it is even an antibiotic, which is to say it's quite dangerous, remember? Because painkillers have the characteristic of taking away the signal that something's wrong. You may need that signal to orient you and have the urgency. Think about what's happened in the context of COVID. You know, I don't know that I am glad that we got smacked in the face by something that hit us so hard, but I can say that if I look at the trajectories that we were on collectively prior to COVID, none of them were good. And bizarrely enough, the likelihood that we are actually going to make it through this thing is a little higher now because there's been a kind of a collective requirement to dispense with a lot of inertia, for example. So the inquiry that I would invite with lots of like, how do I say this? You know, cut the shit. Stop living in dreamland, stop telling stories, really try to be the person who's faced with a bad fucking choice and a high likelihood of absolute failure. Is what would a good solution actually look like? What could really actually resolve the situation that we're in? Do you, have you found for yourself an answer to that? Well, yes, but not, um, how do I say this, um, to use Vervakis language, not propositionally. I, can't, I can give you a theory, but we're not going to be able to do that. The theory is way too rarefied. And it's not, it's not practical, meaning I can't, I can't take the theory and move it into practice easily. The, the metaphor would be like, you know, I don't, this may not be a very helpful metaphor, but quantum mechanics as a physics theory existed way, way before we could build lasers. There's a lot of things that had to be done. So there's a theory, but the theory is at a very high level. It's not very practical. But I do have an increasing embodied sense of what the right answer feels like. Give it to us. Well, we've been talking about it. You said it. You actually nailed it just right, which was once I begin to grasp the nature of, the, of what it means to truly achieve or approach sovereignty, one of the very first things that drops in is this amazing reality. It is always an effective choice always an effective choice to support everyone else in their own journey of sovereignty. Think about that. It's a very powerful epistemological proposition. Do you feel that we're doing that in this moment? Is this, is this time well spent when the house is burning to be sitting on this couch and speaking to each other in this way? Yes. You ready? That's it. Yeah, that is tough. The answer is yes. Well, thank God, because <laughs> now my body relaxes a little bit, and I'm like, okay, I'm doing something. 
So what, well, why is it yes? Why yeah, is, so why does this matter? So think about the person who's got the context of the of the of the burning house, right? And think about their body, the physiological state. And what I'm proposing is that a nice deep breath before you run into the building is actually a very useful practice. And remember we talked about being in a fight and having the right disposition. And we've got a fight. A fight is coming. It's a big fight. We're overmatched. There's really only three things we can do. One thing is we can do everything we can to build our capacity to respond to what's coming. Uh, that's part of what we're doing. Right? Part of what's happening is we're building a relationship. We're building an ability to communicate. We're building a way to work through all the things that get in between our ability to coordinate and to collaborate. We're sharing skillfulness and we're becoming building a relationship. I think so. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> that's one part, right? It's going to take a lot of us a whole lot of us, a sizable fraction of humanity to be able to respond to what we're faced with. And this is not going to be handled by a small group of people or even a large group of people. It's going to take a large, very large group of people able to operate at a whole different level of collaboration. And then we're also achieving a disposition. And that, that sense of sovereignty has an anchor in disposition. You know, that, that am I here? Am I present? Am I balanced? Am I... You know, connecting with the full of myself. You know, if, you, if you think about like, a, have you seen an Olympic athlete as they're getting ready to go into their, into their practice? The process of like really getting centered, usually a ritual, meditation, breath. The reason why they're doing that is because they have to marshal the whole of their capacities and you know, make sure that they are there. Every muscle, every breath, every neuron is tuned and ready to go. And all the work and practice they have put in over a lifetime is prepared for this moment. Attunement, right? To tuning, to, to achieve a disposition that is appropriate to allow the fullness of our capacity to actually show up in the moments that we're finding ourselves in. And that's the other thing we have to do. And the last is the most challenging. The last is in some sense the mysterious. The thing that we don't yet have. We literally have to create new possibility. And there's a spiral there. Right. Our, our emergent capacity when we are really, really flowing is that which gives space for the emergence of new possibility, which then when integrated into emergent capacity is what grows emergent capacity. And that begins to spiral us up. Um, and you mentioned this, the gentleman who came in. Right? I'd like to propose thinking about the election as a little bit like that. Mm, I love it. And not quite as much as like a, a tank rolling through the building, right? You know, if the tank rolls through the building, we definitely need to scramble and get the hell out of here. If a guy opens the door, maybe we can respond a little bit more elegantly and actually use the energy of it to support us in moving more deeply onto the practice that we, I think, now can say we need to. And so maybe to, to speak to your, your QAnon friends, what I would do, and what I do do, actually, quite often, is to say, okay, it's, it's quite likely... So let me just imagine that you are a, a QAnon devotee, just to make this simple. It's quite likely that you're on to something. It's quite likely, like I said, that, that we're smart in different ways. And whatever aspect of you is smart is, is, is somehow pulled in this direction. And it's quite likely that we have errors in different ways. And you've got blind spots, I've got blind spots. Neither of us are adequate to the context we find ourselves in. What can we do to be in dialogue? How can I actually find a way to bridge that gap in a way that's actually generative? 
it's tricky, isn't it? Because in some sense, the conclusions that are drawn can oftentimes be very distinct. Maybe even polar opposite, right? A conclusion of a QAnon person will be, I'm voting for Trump. A QAnon from your frame would be, I'm voting for Biden. And the opposite is quite dangerous. But the proposition is to say, well, okay, but more polarization is unlikely to be on the path of success. We're highly polarized and intensely, uh, there's a symmetry in the polarization. I can't dominate the other side, which would sometimes be an excused response, right? You mean that one? The, other, the, the alternative, the other approach is so dangerous that I am justified in doing things that I would otherwise think are immoral. That's a very common black hole. But it's unlikely we're going to get away with that. And if I don't like the other side and I decide the best thing to do is to lock them all up, well, they'll probably not take well to that and we'll just continue to spiral down on the polarization, which of course is the ordinary path that we tend to take. So I better enter dialogue with them. And, and epistemological humility which again does not mean the least bit of, um, how do I say, giving in to what is in fact actually error. But it's just you know, thoughtfulness. Like We can have a conversation and we can, we can learn very powerful things. And I really have, and I've done this a lot. I've jumped around a whole lot. And what I've noticed is essentially a lot of trauma, lots and lots and lots of trauma, lots of defense mechanisms, lots of people trying their best with limited capacity to respond to the overwhelming environment they find themselves in. So, so you're saying that I should have been doing my trauma work with my therapist as the fire was licking up the canyon. Like I, you know, <laughs> I, maybe I should have stayed in that therapeutic container as long as I could and the important thing that I should have collected to, to evacuate with would have been a few more precious moments of that deep work rather than, you know. Actually what I'm computer. saying is I don't know. I definitely don't know. Because that's a lot of context there. I mean, Think about the, you've done that thing where you notice where other people are in fact as infinitely complex as you are and you can't possibly come even vaguely close to getting to know anything about that, like a minuscule amount. I, I love that. I, I love think it of too. It, I think of it as like a magical garden inside every person that's full of flora and fauna that I've never before experienced and, and it's an entire landscapes and different climates that are all going on inside the, the world of another. It's and so then, and then the, the absolute tragedy of every moment that is spent where they are not completely expressing into the world and the incomprehensible tragedy of the cessation of each one. And it's that, that thing. But then that, again, that brings me back to humility. The reality is, I don't know, maybe, it could be. It could be the opposite could be too true. Uh, hopefully though, when you find yourself in that circumstance, you'll be in a place where you can take a deep breath, you can try to ground yourself, and bring the whole of yourself with complete integrity, not divided against yourself in any way, not trying to do what you should do and allowing the narrative part of yourself to drive the choice making, but really the whole of yourself to make that choice. And then to be confident in the fact that that's the best you could possibly have done anyway. This conversation is different than any other that I've done for a number of reasons. One, this is the first time I've ever done a podcast with a hard stop. I never have hard stops on podcasts for exactly this reason. And yet it maps on to kind of the experience of crisis. So we're in an experience of crisis with the clock ticking. I'm in an experience of conversation with you where because of an obligation that I cannot shift, I have to be done at noon, right? And so over the past 15 minutes or so, I've been watching the clock and I've been thinking to myself, my best move right now is actually not to let this ticking clock interrupt the unfolding of what's happening 
and to be still my body with it and to be at peace with this ticking clock and allow these moments to unfurl and not try to push us to land because I have to trust that we will land and I have to trust that the ticking clock is just as much a part of this emergent moment as the man coming through the door. And so here we are in the final moments of a conversation that could be four times as long. You know, well, probably not. We'd get too tired. But here we are in the final moments of the allotted time that we have to speak to each other. And we have not landed in a clean fix, but we have landed with a humble respect for the infinite garden in another, a recognition of how much trauma is at play and how much trauma fuels uh, polarity, um, polarization, pardon me, And I think what I have, and I'm going to need to listen to this a few times (laughs) to figure out exactly all the little pieces of it. But the point of this show is that life is a festival. And I've been more and more thinking of life as a festival according to an old Stoic. It's like a pectus. I've only read it. I don't know how it's said. But he said that life is a festival actually as a way of being okay with suffering. And I think in this case, we can say suffering and confusion and crisis. If life is a festival and you are a participant in a glorious spectacle of life and you move through it with the joy that this too is a festival, this too is a spectacle, these these people that I need to conquer because they're evil are actually not. They're one more part of this glorious festival. That there's something kind of stoic, oddly enough, about believing that life is a festival. And so the landing place that I have in this entire arc of conversation is I believe that everything that we've discussed is true. The urgency, the crisis, the world as it is, the need to overcome our addiction to our personal growth, it is all true. And yet, life is still a festival. And we are still in the festival of life. And you and I are sitting on the couch, smiling at each other, enjoying a new friendship, although we've been connected for a while, enjoying like this sharing of ideas. And that's enough for me now. I like that way of saying it. I was thinking about uh, Jimmy Wheel's metaphor of sticking the landing. And uh, I don't know that I've ever stuck a landing. <laughs> because uh, a friend of mine recently was telling me about a story that uh, he, a, a way of describing a certain affliction that he says has happened to a lot of millennials, which had to do with something like a uh, like a, a deep imposed neuroticism and uh, narcissism, which created a, a sense of a necessity towards perfection, a necessity towards doing really, really well, or even epicness. That to, to, to fall short of epicness was somehow catastrophic. And therefore, right, polish and and, and uh, also, by the way, not trying hard. And what I would propose is, is I'm actually quite okay with the notion that we may not land this. I'm okay with the fact that this kind of feels a little um, work in progress. We have one minute left, so yeah. there is no way that we can land it as we discuss landing it. Give give us our final little non-landing, Jordan. Yeah, well, if you if you follow the notion of the Stoics and you follow that phrase, the notion of the of life as a festival. Just remember that metaphor of the kayak and the river, that there really is a distinction between a good festival and a bad festival. This does not mean that everything is exactly homogenous, that you can just take the oars out of the water and stop paddling altogether. What it means is that that gives you the ability to be in relationship with life such that you can participate most fully in making life an increasingly awesome festival and that everything that comes at you can be alchemically transformed into fuel in that direction. Right? That's the key. 
You do not escape the reality of life, nor do you fight the reality of life. You discover how to flow with it and to turn it into increasing flow with you. That is literally the DNA of this show. Is That is the goal. How do we alchemize everything that comes through life to make it more like a festival that we are experiencing and we are presenting to others and co-creating in collaboration with them? So we did stick it. You, na- you nailed the point of the show. Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show, for taking this time. It's been so amazing to meet you in person. And I in- invite everyone listening to check out your incredible writing on Medium, your talks. And we'll have more stuff in the introduction about you and who you are. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.